0: We all get a little busy sometimes, so for this week's episode, it's still going to be new, but we recorded it a while ago, just in case something like this happened. And as we're recording now, in fact, they've just started throwing chunks off the Berlin Wall, and I think Reagan is about to speak, so I'm going to adjust my antennas, dial in my color TV, and just take a listen. Also, (laughs) Pac-Man... Every day, the graduate student writers of astrobytes.org publish summaries of recent developments in astronomy. Then we sit down with three recent astrobytes of our choosing and bring them together, sometimes in ways you wouldn't expect. We call it Astro Soundbites. I'm Will Saunders. I'm a Ph.D. student at Boston University, where presently I study the atmosphere of Uranus. I'm Alex Galliano. I'm a Ph.D. student at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign,
1: where I study supernovae and slightly more exotic transients.
2: And I'm Melaina Rice. I'm a Ph.D. student at Yale University, where I study planets and the environments around them.
0: You're listening to Little Green Men or Big Glowing Trees. That's that's the title we decided on. <laughs> I changed it.
1: I changed it right before we ran it, and I was thinking about telling you, but then everyone wanted to record, so we just started.
0: Alright, well let's let's go with it. So we should probably unpack what the heck that means. So little green men was kind of a, a funny way of referring to aliens back in the 50s, you know, in UFOs and the ideas of Martians and other other fun ideas, they just called these little green men. And big glowing trees are what if we don't actually find. The aliens, but we find the trees. Or what if the trees are the aliens? And as you'll see, that might actually be the case. So today's episode is going to be covering the topic of astrobiology. And simply put, this field of study is trying to answer the questions does extraterrestrial life exist? And if so, can humans detect it? These are some of the biggest questions that you'll ever ask as a person. And for me, it's created a lot of fun late night conversations with friends uh, in college. Um, And and even since. But the truth is that most of astrobiology is not so theoretical and metaphysical. It is observational and it is grounded in experiment.
2: And our three Astrobites definitely also fall under these categories of being observational and experimental. And I think a lot of people are intrigued by the possibilities of life elsewhere in the universe. But few are familiar with the specific steps that are actually being taken towards that goal.
0: And we will definitely talk about those steps in these astrobytes. But before we do the specifics, let's indulge a minute of some of the grand ideas in extraterrestrial life.
1: Well, if we talk about extraterrestrial life, guys, we have to talk about the Drake equation.
0: Naturally. So
1: Frank Drake, for those who don't know, of UC Santa Cruz, back in the day, constructed an equation. This was 1961. And in this equation... He threw seven poorly constrained constants, which at that time determined, if you multiply them all together, an estimate of the number of intelligent civilizations in our own galaxy in the Milky Way.
0: Some of these constants that we had no clue about in the 60s, they seemed almost fanciful, have actually been answered by now. For instance, the fraction of stars that have planets. In the 60s, we didn't know of a single Uh, exoplanet in fact we didn't know about any till the 90s and now we know about thousands and that's due in thanks mostly to kepler
2: and the drake equation also relates to the fermi paradox which argues that given the number of sun-like stars that are in the milky way and as we now know the large number of planets that exist around those stars we might statistically expect that earth should have been contacted by intelligent life by now
0: Yeah, it's it's an interesting topic of discussion. There's been a lot of writings about the Fermi paradox, and there are some proposed ways to resolve this. Uh, For instance, one of them is that there's at some point in evolutionary development a bottleneck, which says that you might get a lot of civilizations developing uh, bacterial or single cell life, but then for some reason they stop there, and there's only one in a very large number that goes beyond that point.
1: This is known as the great filter for our listeners.
0: Hmm. Oh, that's, that's good. I didn't know that. But the truth is, the current rate of intelligent life is pretty much speculative right now.
2: Right. It's kind of hard to know with a data point of one. But <laughs> there's no better time than the present for wild speculation. Will, <laughs> would you like to take it away?
0: <laughs> okay, let's jump into these astrobites. And hopefully we'll have a little bit of time at the end to have some more of the metaphysical discussion too. The astrobite I'm talking about is called Emerging from the Shadows. A Method for Detecting Complex Life on Exoplanets, is written by Anthony Mao, and the paper is by Doty and others, submitted to the International Journal of Astrobiology, but not yet published. And this paper seeks to use Earth as an exoplanet, which is a common theme, to try to understand what characteristics of Earth might make it identifiable as a planet with complex life from elsewhere.
2: You know, it's always a little bit troubling when you only have one data point you know when you're trying to make extrapolations based on that so everything that's sort of based around earth has to be to some extent taken with a grain of salt
1: yeah at the same time though if you had another system to provide them with with complex life on it i'm sure they would be more than happy to include it in the study
2: oh absolutely
0: (laughs) (laughs) it turns out it's really easy to fit a model to one data point (laughs) right (laughs) Well, the overall idea of this paper is is rather simple. Uh, Trees cast shadows most of the time, which means that parts of Earth with trees will look darker than elsewhere. So you can look for this relative brightness and darkness and see if there are trees. There are
1: also, I'd imagine, lots of other things that influence patches of lightness and darkness on the Earth. I would think of potentially different albedos of different surfaces, maybe different cloud coverage. How does any of that influence this study?
0: Great question. Albedo specifically doesn't apply. The, the reason being that it doesn't change based on the tilt angle of the light. It's an innate property, whereas trees will cast a longer shadow when the sun is low in the sky and a smaller shadow when, when the sun is high in the sky. But it turns out very little of Earth's surface is actually sloped steeper than 45 degrees. There are some cliffs, you know, maybe a few other things, but I'm, I'm struggling to think of anything other than a cliff face that might be that steep.
2: Hmm, yeah, I mean, I guess other planets might have a lot more cliff-like things because of cratering sure. so maybe that's a possibility if there are like lots and lots of meteors in those systems
1: but it, it's true potentially if they have many craters then that would probably also mean that they didn't have a lot of trees right
2: right and the craters might right. just end up flattening each other out right so
0: that's what happens on earth <laughs> um that the craters flatten out but like on the moon, there is quite a few surfaces that are steeper than 45 degrees. But at the same time that we know because of that, the moon can't have trees.
1: Okay. So if you're looking at the shade cast by different trees, then when the yeah. sun is directly overhead, those trees would cast a very little shadow, right?
0: Yeah, exactly. That, that's kind of the crux of this is you'd expect very little shadow at one circumstance and a much greater shadow in another circumstance. But at the high phase angle, which is what it's called the angle of the sun relative to the surface, at a, at a high phase angle, that is the sun is low in the horizon, almost everything casts a shadow. A tree casts a shadow, a rock casts a shadow, a little uh, hill casts a shadow. But at a moderate phase angle, that's like maybe the sun is is at like the, the mid-afternoon, Most of the shadows are trees. Not a lot else is casting shadows. So then you can isolate the effect of the trees and see if you could notice that on another planet.
2: That's a really interesting idea, and it's something that maybe would be hard to impersonate with other things. I'm not really sure. I'd have to think about it more. So how, how do they actually explore this hypothesis, and how are you able to determine what you'd be looking for exactly?
0: Right. It's a clever idea, but is it feasible? And what they designed was a test to see, looking at Earth, how a forest compares to craters. But it turns out finding a crater on Earth is really hard. Any idea of how they found a crater to compare to the forests?
2: Go to Arizona? There are craters there, right? <laughs> uh, Look
1: under the
0: water? Under oh, the
2: oceans? but you'd probably get a lot of erosion. Not under
0: the ocean. Milena was closer. Like,
2: mm, places that don't really erode much, probably, but I'm not sure... I don't know much geology.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, the answer is that it is Arizona, but the reason is not Mm -hmm. what you were thinking. Back in the 60s, the U.S. Geological Survey created a field of craters in Arizona using explosives to prep for the moon landings. And it was the Apollo training grounds. It's near Flagstaff, actually. Uh, We can link to a cool video talking about this. But what they did is they used the data from 1967 of an airplane flying over that field because it has eroded away mostly since then. It's almost gone. But the video taken in 1967 was pretty good. And then they used a drone today flying over a forest and they compared those two sets of data looking at the reflectance is, is what it's called of sunlight in those two areas at different times of day to compare the different angles of the sun. And their major finding was that this was a pretty good first step. They could distinguish the bare ground from the tree shadows, and from the crater shadows. So that's actually a, a promising result in there.
2: That's super interesting, and I'm really shocked that I got that guess right. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, you totally, totally nailed it. So they did one other you know, important test in this, and they wanted to then see how would it really look from space. So with one pixel of resolution, could you distinguish the Sahara Desert from the Amazon rainforest? They went out to space, presumably, with a camera to test this hypothesis? Yep, they launched to space. It took them years to get far enough away. And with an iPhone, they took a video. (laughs) Wow, very impressive. Google Pixel (laughs) is really good. (laughs) (laughs) Right, they did none of those things. They used a satellite called Polder, the polarization and directionality of the Earth's reflectances. This is a French-operated satellite that operated until 2013. It's low resolution, but it covers the whole planet. So they could get great pictures of Amazon and compare it to the Sahara. And what they found is the Sahara changes 4% in its reflectance from a low to a medium phase angle. And the Amazon changes 9% from a low to a medium phase angle. So they both change. The Amazon changes a little more, but they were a little disappointed.
2: So would that be something that we could distinguish from very far away from the noise, though? I guess I'm not sure how that would actually manifest when you're looking at exoplanets.
0: Good question. I I don't really understand it either. The authors seem pessimistic about it. So what I could glean from this paper was even with a satellite only a few hundred kilometers away from Earth, we can barely distinguish two of the most different features on the face of the planet with a one-pixel resolution. So the prospect of doing it for a distant planet is is pretty small
2: it's a really cool idea though
0: it, it is it's a wonderful idea and i think it's it's really encouraging that they're trying these things but before i finish up one last thing they did try is modeling how the reflectance would change with phase angle to see if maybe clouds or rocky surfaces uh change the way that things look right
1: totally yeah i was about to ask how clouds might influence this result so I'd imagine that they compared that empirical data to the models that they generated?
0: Exactly. So they, they generated models for Mars and Venus to try to see which the Earth would resemble more closely to. The empirical data from the Earth compared to a model of Venus, model of Mars. They expected it to fall somewhere in between, but it actually wound up being about the same as the Venus model, which isn't great. That wasn't what they were hoping, and clouds might obscure any ability to see trees but there's a lot of the information that's missing from the empirical data so we're not really sure yet
1: well that doesn't sound super encouraging of a result
0: yeah it's not the reality is that this is kind of a pipe dream right now and i don't want to sugarcoat it it's it's going to be a long time if ever before this sort of research actually works however there have been a long line of ambitious astronomers called crazy until they became wildly successful so don't count out a devoted person with a telescope
2: Hmm. Yeah, it's true that a lot of astronomical discoveries have been completely unexpected, and so it's kind of, I don't know, I guess if you flip that the other way, it seems like it's probably worthwhile to try to explore the unexpected and look at ways that you wouldn't immediately necessarily think to consider, so. Sure. And... My astrobite is also definitely doing that, <laughs> um, and so it is looking at life in a slightly different way in that it's not looking for trees, but rather it's looking for the glow of biofluorescent organisms, and so the astrobite is called Fluorescent Worlds: Searching for Life's Glow by Jamie Wilson, and the paper is by O'Malley James and Nager from 2019.
1: Okay, Milena, this sounds incredibly cool and also a unique way to look for life. I haven't heard other studies that try and look for this. So could you explain to us what biofluorescence is and how it relates to life?
2: So some organisms on Earth have built-in proteins that absorb and re-emit sunlight at different wavelengths that lead to a characteristic glow that's known as bioluminescence or biofluorescence. And this can serve different purposes. So, for example, on Earth, there are some fish in the deep ocean, like anglerfish, for example, that use their bioluminescence to attract prey. Um, some other bioluminescent animals use it for mating purposes, for communicating with other animals in their species. And so it has a couple of different purposes on Earth.
0: Well, it'd be really cool to see uh, bioluminescence on other planets but I'm not even sure that I've seen any on Earth. Yeah, I was thinking about this fireflies, right? Mm.
1: Fireflies oh, are bio- fluorescence. I've, I've also seen a few of my friends glow up in just the past couple weeks. <laughs> <laughs> <What>? <laughs> <laughs> that one's for our younger audience. We'll hopefully get that one. <laughs> so, Milena, what's the reasoning behind looking for the glow of these animals on other planets? And is there a reason to think that they might be more common elsewhere than here?
2: Yeah, so like you were both saying, biofluorescent animals are not exactly super common on Earth. It's not like they're covering the entire surface of the Earth. And so the reasoning behind this study is that M-dwarfs, which are the most common kind of star in the galaxy, they make up around 75% of the stars, are very sneezy, as we've mentioned in a previous episode.
0: Ah, sneezy. My homie. favorite of the dwarfs.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I actually relate most to Sleepy, admittedly. (laughs)
0: <laughs> in reality though D- disney doesn't really capture sneezy's attributes Th- you think it's from hay fever but we know sneezy is really sneezing because of stellar activity
2: <laughs> of course <laughs> of course <laughs> so m dwarfs like sneezy are highly active due to their stellar activity <laughs> and so this activity causes them to give off a lot of uv radiation through their frequent flares and so Some people actually use this as an argument against life existing on M-dwarfs because that radiation can be really harmful and actually maybe even deadly for life.
0: Yeah, I've heard about that.
2: Yeah, so that's sort of like an ongoing back and forth, but there are some organisms on Earth that either live underwater or underground, and they've evolved to have their own protective measures against that radiation, and so one of those is photoprotective biofluorescence, which some of these undersea fish and coral on Earth have, where they actually can just take these UV rays and they can convert that light to pretty greens and blues that are much more harmless, that are not going to murder them as the violent UV rays would.
0: So you're saying they have their own brand of sunscreen? Yes. <laughs> that's, that's pretty sweet, actually. I hadn't heard of that one before. <laughs> I would say it also makes sense to look for M dwarfs for other reasons. They're so abundant, but they have long lifetimes. So it might provide a stable environment for a long time for life to evolve and take a, take a while getting there.
2: Right.
1: Yeah, it's, it's also worth mentioning that exoplanets, most of them that we found, have been found by transit detection. And finding a change in brightness caused by a planet is easier when you start off with a dimmer star to begin with. So the fractional change in brightness is higher.
2: There's also even another reason, which is that the habitable zone for our M-dwarfs, which is the region where liquid water can exist on the surface of a planet, it's relatively close to the star for M-dwarfs, which means that we're much more likely to find transiting planets in those habitable zones for M-dwarfs than for other stars. So they're actually really great targets to look for life in general, besides, you know, the UV radiation that kills everything potentially.
0: So aside from that terrible UV radiation, we seem to love M-dwarfs, of course. But I I really want to hear about the biofluorescence. That's the cool part of this. We've mentioned that these organisms might survive better than others on planets around M-dwarfs. But would they ever be abundant enough we could see them? Like that would require so much biomass.
2: Yeah. So there are a couple of arguments here. Um, The first is that organisms on planets around these types of stars might have to evolve with these adaptations to survive at all. So it's possible that, you know, if a habitable planet does exist around an M dwarf, maybe all the organisms have to be bioluminescent. The authors also argue that the fluorescent proteins would evolve to be more efficient, so they'd more efficiently convert energy on these planets around an M dwarf because they would have to become more efficient in order to survive. And so the authors in this paper ended up analyzing the biofluorescent emissions from common coral proteins on Earth and developed some models to try to figure out what those emissions might look like from hypothetical Earth-like planets around M dwarfs.
1: I love how interdisciplinary this study is. When you go to grad school for astronomy, you really don't think that one day you're going to be looking at corals and the biofluorescent emissions
0: from them.
2: It's pretty cool. It's a good excuse to go to like the Great Barrier Reef or something. I've
0: always wanted to do field
2: work. Yeah, put that in a great (laughs) application. (laughs) Yeah.
0: But,
1: Milena, different planets aren't all going to be the same in terms of their, for example, atmospheric properties, their land to water ratios, etc. Right? All these things could change the result.
2: Yeah, so the authors considered a few different factors, such as those. So they considered different surface features, fractional cloud coverage, and also the percent of the planet that would have to be covered with this biofluorescent stuff, these organisms. And they tried to figure out what those emissions would look like in each of those cases, and whether they could actually serve as a feasible biosignature.
0: So what did they find?
2: Well, if the planet is 100% covered with biofluorescent organisms, and there are no (laughs) clouds... Then the visible flux from the planet could increase by actually more than an order of magnitude. Whoa. So There would be this huge change in the planet to star contrast and direct imaging with the next generation of extremely large telescopes, actually the extremely large telescope in Chile, (laughs) would Mm. potentially be able to see it. (laughs) (laughs) And so it might also be observable with, you know, slightly lower coverage of organisms or maybe higher cloud coverage, but, you know, the detectability will decrease as you make these changes.
1: Wow. For the cloud coverage on the uh, planet or on our planet. Right? Yeah, that's
2: also true. <laughs> you would need probably a fair bit of observing time and also to, you know, find the right planet that happens to have the right set of features.
0: Right. All right. So everybody start looking out for a big glowing planet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
2: Yeah, but I mean, it's a cool idea, and it seems not completely unfeasible, and so it's something to keep in mind if people do see certain signatures that they weren't expecting.
0: You're acting like this is a totally normal idea. This is crazy. <laughs> this is crazy. You think you're going to have a, a big glowing planet of bioluminescence? That's that's the craziest thing you could think of when you're looking at a train. What's that one quote, like,
1: everything not forbidden is compulsory? I feel like that's something to think about oh, a great. lot in this research, where if you could think of an even potentially to the smallest degree possible feasible result, then start looking for it because it's probably out there somewhere.
2: I love that. Yeah, it's it's a possibility, you know, there there are a lot of possibilities when it comes to alien life forms. <laughs> we don't really know. So we're just looking for what we would be able to detect, you know.
0: And with that, I think it's time for our <laughs> Astro, Astro Soundscape, Soundscape of, of the, the Space, space Fortnite. Fortnite in the search for life and beyond. And beyond. <laughs> 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 okay. Raina, you're bringing us this special sound.
2: Yeah, so I am going to play a clip that's sort of related to what we've been talking about, although not exactly the same thing, because, you know, we don't have any alien space sounds. So I'm just going to play that now.
1: Thank you.
0: It's Vivaldi!
2: It's not Vivaldi. This is actually probably one of the most famous of the space sounds we've had, although probably not super well known that it's in space. This is yeah. the Wait, can I well, guess? Alex, actually, do you want to guess?
1: Yeah, yeah, my guess is that it is one of the recordings that made it onto the golden record that is sailing away from our solar system.
2: Yes, but I will only give it to you if you can give me the composer. Oh come on!
0: <laughs> Wait wait. I got this. I got this. It's gotta be Mozart.
2: It's not Mozart.
0: Who's famous enough to be worth putting Mozart's on the golden record? Mozart's
2: also on the golden record.
0: Oh he made it on in somewhere else. Yeah, there are quite a few people. Beethoven.
2: (laughs) No. Guys.
0: As good a guess as him.
2: it's it's not Beethoven. Beethoven is also on the golden record though. Is he really? Yeah, yeah. Half credit. <laughs> so this is the Brandenburg Concerto Number no. no. 2 in F Major, Allegro, by Bach. Also fairly well known. Absolutely. Uh, so there are actually a couple of different pieces by Bach, Beethoven, Stravinsky, a few other very well-known artists, as well as lesser-known artists from just all around the world that have made it onto this thing called The Golden Record, uh, which is basically a record that is meant to represent... Various aspects of culture and society on the Earth that was sent out into space. So, you know, if an alien ever did come across this record, then they would have all of this information about what life is like on Earth.
1: Well, let's hope that the uh, big glowing trees like classical, right?
2: Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) I think they also sent like diagrams of like what humans look like. And they sent people speaking in lots of different languages and saying hello. So there's kind of a lot of stuff on there. They would probably stay entertained for at least a day. You know, it's it's a good amount of content.
0: Yeah, or they'll just (laughs) get angry at it and smash it and run away.
2: Yeah, you know, that's a possibility. But if we found a record floating through space, we'd probably, you know, listen. Blow each
0: other up over it, fight about it, (laughs) argue about it, make it into a political thing, have a candidate run on the message of it, (laughs) turn it into its own party. (laughs) It would be a disaster, Milena. You do not want to make first contact with Earth. If any aliens are listening, stay away. You, you, You don't want us. (laughs) <laughs> i think that's the most plausible explanation for extraterrestrial
1: life thus far is that they've been listening to astro Life and uh, at your advice
0: will they've been not making contact. it was the last pun they just couldn't take it anymore and they're done with <laughs> us
2: they heard our recording back in what the 60s or whatever <laughs> when we originally recorded this haven't come since all right yep.
0: alex you ready to take it back to plant life let's throw it back to plants <laughs> a lot less controversial more, in the plant, plant
2: world. Yeah.
1: Okay, so my astrobite is called Green Plants on Red Planets, Would Photosynthesis Work? by Rosanna Tilbrook, and it's based on a paper by Lingam and Loeb in 2019. Now, we've been talking about M-dwarfs because they've been easy to find, but they also pose significant problems for plant-based life, as Melina alluded to earlier. And a couple of examples, tidal locking of planets are easier with M-dwarfs, causing potentially strong temperature gradients across a planet. And in addition, M-dwarfs have a relatively low energy output with average surface temperature of around 3000 Kelvin, and they peak in red light. So this paper sought to investigate what photosynthesis might look like on a planet orbiting an M-dwarf.
2: So how would we actually get a measure on the ability of a star planet system to end up actually creating photosynthesis on that planet?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. How would you quantify something like this? Mm -hmm. So Here the authors looked at the flux of what's called photosynthetically active radiation, or PAR. Okay, we'll call that PAR. So, PAR flux is the flux of photons between 400 and 700 nanometers, or visible light, which on Earth is necessary for photosynthesis to occur. Now, M-dwarfs give off a lower net flux than our sun, as we said, but the authors wanted to find out how that PAR flux translates to what's called the net primary productivity, or the NPP, of the Earth.
0: Oh gosh, this is a lot of terms. Okay, (laughs) what is the net primary productivity? So
1: the NPP is the rate at which energy is produced by biological processes and made available to other organisms that can't produce their own, like us. So the authors compare Parflux to the Parflux- that translates to the same NPP as we have on Earth, which actually isn't 1, as you might expect for a reference value, but it's 2.5 because the NPP is limited not by the par flux from the sun, but by limited nutrient availability on our Earth.
2: So presumably this number would be 1 if all the par flux translated to energy produced by photosynthesis, right?
1: Correct, right. If we had perfect nutrient availability on Earth to translate the par flux, then yes, that number would be 1. And the authors here find that a star with about 20% our own star's mass has a par flux of 1, which could translate to the same NPP as Earth if the planet was a perfect photosynthesizer, as you said. Now, the problem with this is that the typical M dwarf is probably around 10% of a solar mass. So it's not really looking good for being able to say that the average M dwarf is going to harbor photosynthetic life.
0: Mm. And what about when things flare? Does that surge the par and give us more hope for photosynthesis or not? The authors
1: thought that it might. It turns out that it probably does not. So their results suggested that less than 1% of M dwarfs have flares that are strong enough to push them over the NPP threshold if they were below it to begin with. Mm. And now, before we conclude this discussion, there's one more way to look at this problem, and that's by considering how much photosynthesis is needed to build up more oxygen on a planet than would be removed by different geologic processes.
0: As, a, as an aside on this, one of the things that I know about oxygen is it's extremely volatile and unstable, so oxygen just wants to bond with everything.
1: Right, yeah, That's that's very true, and so... They looked at sources and sinks within our own planet. They looked at the O2 created over the O2 removed, and if that value was greater than one in their simulations, then they said this was potentially photosynthetic. And they found that the mass threshold for this to be the case was about 0.13 solar masses. So it's slightly lower than our criteria for the NPP, but still not great.
2: Most stars are smaller than that, right? So does that mean we're not likely to be able to detect planets this way? Life, sorry.
1: (laughs) Right. So we still made so many assumptions in this research to begin with. So on Earth, we really have no idea why plants photosynthesize the way they do, why they absorb the colors that they do given the energy output of our own sun. And until we get a better handle on that, then we're really going to have no way of saying whether photosynthesis on other planets is the same as on earth or whether it's feasible given particular systems
0: so we'll have to throw the astrobiology discussion back to the biologists for a bit exactly
2: so if we find a par flux that's closer to one then it'll be like a hole in one i've just been thinking golf this whole time i've been very distracted
0: (laughs) why are you thinking about golf
2: because par is like uh, the... par
0: for the course Do you play yeah. golf
2: i that's what's been on my mind my dad does i've played like my, my times. parents
0: are big time golfers
2: <laughs> anyways not to get off topic <laughs> <laughs> yeah if we find life in this way it'd be a hole in one <laughs>
1: Before I move on, I should, I should give a shout out to Cassidy, who's a, another grad student in my program, uh-huh. because this was the first lengthy astronomy discussion we had when I started grad school about how plants might photosynthesize on other planets. I love that. I think it's fascinating.
2: Go Cassidy! I love Cassidy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Alright, so I think it's time to move
0: to our one-sentence summaries, so let's start with you, Will. Would it be possible to identify complex life on other planets by looking at tree shadows? Probably not. Will we keep trying? Probably. Milena?
2: That was a four-sentence summary. All right. Four
0: (laughs) four nice and tight (laughs) sentences.
2: (laughs) I've got a longer one sentence. Bioluminescence could be a potential biosignature that we can use to look for life, although it would likely require some... Very specific conditions and some very, one might even say extremely, large telescopes to be observable from Earth. Uh. (laughs) (laughs) Alex, what's your one sentence summary?
1: Finding plants on planets around M dwarfs might not yet be a hole in one, (laughs) and we'll have to await more research from biologists to shed more light on the topic.
0: Very good. So now we have some time for some fun and wacky speculative discussion. Woo! All right, so here's where we're going to start. How good of an assumption is it that things elsewhere in the universe work the way they do here? Can we assume that life would be anything like life on Earth?
2: I think it's really hard to say because, again, we do only have that one data point. But I think probably a lot of the motivation here is looking for life that we would recognize so it may be that life exists in a lot of other ways. And for example, the biofluorescence astrobite was looking at maybe life that isn't quite like life on Earth, but we still might be able to recognize it. But I think the, f- the sure. farther we deviate from that, the less likely we are to actually be able to tell that it's life. So I think it's sort of a balance where you want to consider things that don't quite exist on Earth, but not, I guess, not go so far that... You don't really have any grounds for what you're arguing for.
0: Every moon rock is not alive.
2: Right. Well, we think.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I think it's also interesting that when people talk about what constitutes living, when is something actually living... I think that definition has gotten more and more broad over the years to encompass a, a wide range of different phenomena. But the things that we would actually look for, like you said, Milena, has to be just a very, very small subset of what we would potentially constitute as alive because we just need to start somewhere.
0: Right.
2: Well, it might be the full subset. We really don't know. Data point of one.
0: Okay, <laughs> exactly. I mean, we don't really have a choice. That's the problem. It's like we would love to consider other forms of life, and I'm sure we will if we can. But it's, it's, you got to start somewhere. And it's also
1: cool that this is being approached from the lab uh, at the same time. I, I know that there are scientists working on developing different silicon-based enzymes and using that as potentially a proxy for saying whether silicon-based life could be possible out there on other planets.
0: We just really don't know. Absolutely. We've talked today about some of the ambitious efforts to identify not intelligent life but complex life. Uh, elsewhere in the universe, there's a lot of hope for life in our solar system. There has been evidence of small bacteria-like objects on Mars. Could be bacteria, fossils. A lot of uncertainty remains about that. Mars has ice under the North and South Pole, and there could be a significant amount of water there. It's possible there could be a type of life there. We have talked in the past about some of the Jovian moons having seas of, of water maybe underneath we've talked about Enceladus, and we've also talked about Titan, the moon of Saturn, which has liquid methane.
2: And an atmosphere. And an
0: atmosphere. So among all those things, there's a lot of possibility for life both as we know it and foreign to us.
2: Yeah, I think that's very true. And it kind of shows that even within the solar system, there's so much that we don't really know about. I think these particular studies have been sort of looking for things that We've probably ruled out in the solar system. If there was like a planet completely covered with trees, unless it was planet nine or something, then we probably would have seen it in the solar system by now. Right. But there are sort of like multiple approaches to looking for this life. And it's, it's kind of cool that there are two totally separate parties where it's like you can look for it in very specific ways in the solar system, generally looking for microbial life versus looking for similar things probably on a much larger scale in general in completely different systems and there's more room for speculation in other systems so it might actually make it a little bit more fun for those depending on who you ask i suppose
1: yeah i was gonna say that i think that also reflects just how limited we are in astronomy i mean the reason why we're we're looking so hard for life within our solar system is that geez it would be so nice if we could just Mm. go and directly measure life somewhere you know we have to devise all of these not to say crazy, but maybe convoluted methods of, well, if life were set up in this way on another planet and this particular event happened, then maybe we'd be able to detect it if we were looking at it just the right way. But geez, how much easier would it be if we could just go and take an in-situ measurement of the life itself, just capture, scoop it up and then bring it back home to analyze.
0: So the big question, will we detect life during our lifetimes?
1: There was an article that was published in Scientific American in 1997 between Drake and nice. Carl Sagan. And they argued at the very end of it that if a whole lot of people on Earth cared about this issue, then we would almost definitely discover it within our lifetimes. I think that discovering life in our solar system, in our lifetime, is feasible. I'm, I would even say probable.
0: Wow. That's a big claim. It is a big claim. Milena. what do you think?
2: I think I tend to be more of a pessimist on these things. <laughs> uh, so I think certainly in terms of intelligent life, I'm not too optimistic. I think it's much more likely that we would find something in the solar system. Like perhaps Enceladus or Mars might be good possibilities. Although even those, you know, if we're starting to send people to Mars, it might start to become unclear what actually was from Mars versus not. Mm. With that said, I mean... The amount that we know about these exoplanets is so minimal. Like, if you look at the spectra we have of exoplanets, they're not detailed. And the idea of actually finding some sort of signal from an alien just seems, I think, more optimistic than I'm willing to be. I think a lot of people have... Totally different opinions on this, and it's something that we don't have enough evidence for to like really ground people in sort of the more positive or negative party. Mm. But yeah, I guess like for me and science, I just sort of assume like the more mundane it is, the more likely it is. And so if I really wanted aliens to exist, and that means they, in my mind, are less likely to exist because I want it too badly. You know.
0: What do you think, Will? I think that complex life absolutely exists in the universe. The universe is too big and too extraordinary for it not to. Does it exist within the part of the universe we're able to reach and observe? Maybe not. I'm not going to cancel it out completely, but I I wouldn't put a lot of stake in it. That being said, I think our solar system in the past, maybe not the present, but in the past has had single-celled life. Hmm. If the Earth had single-celled life a billion years after its creation, other planets could have too, or even small bodies. Will we find it? We might find a lot of circumstantial evidence, but we won't find the smoking gun. Ever. Ever. Wow. And with that, we will conclude this episode of Astro Soundbites. Little green men or big glowing trees. If you want to read the three astrobytes we talked about today or the associated papers, check out the links in the show notes. You know where to find all of our episodes. It's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and SoundCloud. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to keep your ears to the cosmos.
2: There are fish in the deep ocean called anglerfish.
1: Melina, are you referring to the anglerfish?
2: What do you mean? (laughs) (laughs) Listeners,
0: if you like this joke, go to astrosoundbikes.com slash bad
2: joke and vote now. (laughs)